Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. As Rev. Jerry has said for the last few weeks, Genesis literally means in the beginning. Our passage today is from the third chapter of the book of Genesis. The first two chapters are the story of the creation, two different stories of the same creation of the earth, two different authors with slightly different stories. The first version is more accurate to how scientists believe the earth came to be, the sun and the moon, then the waters and the land, the fish and the animals, and finally the humans. The second version begins with humans being created and then plants and animals. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God said, you can eat any of these except the fruit from this one tree. Then God made a woman out of Adam's rib as a helpmate. This helpmate, Eve, and Adam are naked, pain-free, loving life in the garden with God, until they aren't. Here they're given all the plants and herbs to eat, given by God, who actually is given the name Jehovah. Wherever the word Lord is printed in capital letters in our English Bibles, it is originally the word Jehovah. Jehovah is that name of God, which means that he alone has his beginning of himself and that he gives being to all creatures and things. So, our God, the Creator, Jehovah, gave Adam and Eve a wonderful place to live. Not a palace, but a garden. He gave them what would have been a wonderful life, seemingly forever, until God didn't. Let's turn now to our scripture to see what comes next. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows when you eat for it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took it of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? This past week, we began a new sermon series examining five life-altering questions. As Rev. Mark explained, every single question we will explore together appears in Scripture. Sometimes the inquiry comes from an angel or a messenger, and occasionally, as we shall see this morning, the question comes directly from God. Last week, Rev. Mark explored Jacob's wrestling match in the wilderness with a man who is identified as an angel and later as God by Jacob and the existential question, who are you? Or specifically, what is your name? Now, I have to admit, I'm really happy that Rev. Mark took that particular topic. I mean, if my beloved wife and four children found out I was delivering a sermon on the importance of names, they might have suggested a few names for me to discuss with all of you. But all kidding aside, it's hard to overestimate the value of self-examination and reflection. Indeed, the activity of inquiry about ourselves and our faith is part of what it means to be human. Every single one of us needs to take time to pause and contemplate our identities and purpose. Each one of us who claim the faith needs a space where we can ruminate on the enormity of what Christ has done for us, to contemplate what our faith means for us personally, And this type of mental exercise should hold great prominence to anyone of any age. The unexamined life is not worth living. So saith the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates. Why? Because for Socrates, as for many others then and since, a human being is marked by the capacity to transcend instinct and desire and to make conscious ethical choices. One can make sense of Socrates' claim if it is understood to mean something like those who do not examine their lives make conscious ethical decisions, fail to live a life that allows them to experience being fully human. Our predecessor, John Wesley, commenting on the interpretation of Scripture, wrote, Now of what excellent use is reason. If we would either understand ourselves or explain to others those living oracles. Wesley states quite clearly that without the gift of reason and investigation assisted by the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot understand the essential truths of Scripture. Today, our question comes to us again from the book of Genesis. Genesis is an amazing but sort of weird book. In many ways, Genesis functions as a preface, a 50-chapter preface, to the rest of Scripture. Its range is breathtaking, moving from cosmos to family, from ordered world to reconciled brothers, from seven days of the creation of the universe to the 70 descendants of Jacob entering the land of their sojourn. The placement of Genesis is important for a variety of reasons. It is a book of beginnings, from the beginnings of the universe to the beginnings of the people of Israel. It bears witness 
to the beginnings of God's activity in the life of the world. God's continuing blessing and ordering work at every level is creational. Moreover, only in relationship to the creation can God's subsequent actions in and through Israel be properly understood. The placement of creation demonstrates that God's purposes with Israel are universal in scope. God's work in redemption serves creation, the entire creation. Since it reclaims a creation that labors under the deep and pervasive effects of humankind's destructive choices. Even more, Genesis makes clear that God's redemptive work does not occur in a vacuum. It occurs in the context that has been shaped in decisive ways by the life-giving, creative work of God. Redemption and reconciliation can never be understood as something from nothing without denigrating God's gifts given in creation. Now, today's story is perhaps one of the most familiar stories in the whole of Scripture. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2, a second creation narrative presents itself to the reader. This account, like the narrative in chapter 1, contains a distinct poetic pattern. God creates, there's a problem, and then God creates again and solves the problem. God creates heaven and earth, but there's no one to till the ground. So God creates a human from the dust. Problem solved. God continues to create streams and rivers, plants and trees, and a beautiful garden. We read, the Lord God took the human and put it in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Excellent. Everything is working splendidly. But wait, it's not good for this human to be alone. It needs a helper. Problem. So God creates again, making a bunch of animals and tells this human to name them. Excellent. Problem solved. Not really. Even among all these animals, as amazing as they were, still there was not found a suitable helper for this human. So are you starting to see the pattern yet? God takes a rib from the human and creates a helper, which, by the way, in Hebrew, literally implies an equal partner. And now everything is fixed. Magnificent. Well, not so much. You all heard what happens next. The serpent, the tree, the forbidden fruit, the shame, and finally God walking around looking for this human and its helper, God's creation, asking the question, where are you? We all know the story. In the entire range of the world's writings, it would be difficult to find any passage so brief, which has had such immense influence upon human thought as chapter 3 of Genesis. One could argue that the Apostle Paul made it the foundation stone of his theology. By one person, he writes, sin entered the world in Romans. One person's trespass led to condemnation for all. What happens in this account of creation within chapter 3 of Genesis 
was for Paul the awful fact by which all human destiny was originally determined. Several centuries later, St. Augustine enlarged the first structure of the doctrine which Paul had begun to build. John Calvin, the great reformer, fortified it with his relentless logic. So it has happened that the mind of nearly the whole of Christendom has dwelt for generations within the structure of thought that took its architecture from this one conception of disobedience. And since I have your attention for the next three hours, we will now systematically cover every aspect of the story and its impact throughout church history in meticulous detail. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't tune out just yet. How about we let go of all that forbidden fruit, serpent stuff for today, and focus on what I think is one of the most revealing, thought-provoking moments in the narrative. God walking in the garden, seeking out these humans and calling to them. Where are you? It is a question that drifts through the ages and at some point touches every living soul. Where are you? Now, setting aside all the aspects of the story you heard today, articulating the differences between God and the humans, we hear an astonishing aspect of their relationship. Right there toward the end of the selection, verse 8 tells us that the Lord God walks in the garden. God has come to the place where people are living. It is a pleasant scene in which God walks in the evening breeze without a hint of what seems a bitter denunciation to come. God, seeking out creation, governs the action. I don't know about you, but this is astonishing. The creator of the universe and all creatures chooses not to relate to the world at a distance, but seemingly takes on a human form or at least something recognizable, goes for a walk among the creatures and personally engages them regarding recent events. Now look, the author presents no naive theology, but a deeply profound understanding of how God chooses to enter the life of the world and relate to the creatures. Even more than this, God comes to these humans after their disobedience. God does not abandon them or leave them. Rather, despite what has happened, God seeks them out and comes to them. Now, I, I know. I know there are some thorny issues with this whole story. Questions that do not have easy answers. However, at the end of the day, maybe the main things are the plain things. What we see in the text itself is that these first human beings are presented as individuals who are not sinful, but with clear choices available to them with no response coerced are inevitable. They live in a world where choices count and God has not programmed the divine human relationship. You know, we like to think that this question was an inquiry spoken in obvious anger. I mean, anyone who has or has been around small children knows exactly what I mean. 
You hear that crash from the other room, come running in, see the broken vase, don't see the child, and yell out, where are you? Implying that you know what the child did and are calling them forth to face the music. That would make sense in this case, but I hear the call differently. It is a call of yearning, a call that implies a longing for a relationship. Where are you? Regardless of what has happened, God never abandons these humans. I have always imagined that our familiarity with the whole story, the curses, the casting out, blind us to the fact that God the Creator lovingly seeks out His creation and never leaves them. Even at the end of the story in chapter 4, when things get bad and these humans are expelled from the garden, God does not abandon them. Rather, God clothes them in soft, protective garments. God never leaves them. It is truly a grace-filled moment, and one I take great comfort in, and I hope you do too. Maybe that's our first lesson this morning. Grace is a creator that always seeks us out, walks beside us in every moment, and will never abandon us. Perhaps this simple question, where are you, speaks to our spiritual location as well. I mean, I might be here, but I'm not here, if you know what I mean. Is it possible that at times we are unaware of God's abiding presence because we are simply not in the present moment? Put another way, do we allow the sadness of our past or the fear and anxiety of our future to ruin the awareness of God's grace and love in the present. Where are you? God is here, right now, in this moment, in every moment, waiting for you to love and to take part in the building of God's glorious kingdom. You know, some time ago, after leaving the gym very early in the morning, I stopped by the grocery store to pick up a few items, and on my way out, a disheveled dad in flip-flops and sweats flew by me, fixated on his phone. This guy had hurry written all over him. Next, a little girl swept by me, wearing a little princess outfit, complete with a tiara, carting a blanket and a doll in one arm, and the biggest bag of cookies that you can imagine. This little gal was screaming at her father, who was pacing well ahead of her. Daddy, you forgot the cookies! And did I mention it was about 6 a.m. in the morning? The father was oblivious. And I kept hearing that question in my head. I wanted to pose it to the young dad. Where are you? I kept thinking about a quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He writes... There are only two days in the year that nothing can be done. One is called yesterday, and the other is called tomorrow. So today is the right day to love, believe, do, and mostly live. 
You know, in that moment, amid all that anxiety and rushing, maybe God was calling out to that young father, where are you? Slow down. Be present. Take a break. A cookie will make everything right as rain. A young businessman was running late one day. It was an important day. Today was the day the young man would run point on a big presentation to company executives. This was not the day to be late. The train was crowded that morning, and as the young man frantically worked on his laptop, he noticed a small boy, maybe around 11 or 12, riding alone, clutching a little box. The boy looked nervous, a little scared even. He'd, he'll, he'll be all right, the young man said to himself. Maybe this is his first solo train ride to school or something. As the train came to a stop, people rushed out of the exit doors, and the young businessman hurriedly packed up his laptop and rushed to get off the train, and at that moment, the small boy tripped, dropped his little box, and a hundred puzzle pieces flew across the train floor. It's utterly defeated. This little guy just sat down on the floor, began picking up the pieces, and he just started to cry. I wonder if that young businessman heard a question in his head. Where are you? Can you see? You know, I'm sure the businessman had very important things to attend to. He was running late after all. But rather than exiting the train, the man put down his bags, he bent down, and he began helping the little boy pick up the puzzle pieces in silence. When all the pieces were back in the box, the boy looked up at the man and he quietly said, Mister, can I ask you a question? Of course, the man replied. And then quietly the boy asked, are, are, are you Jesus? You know, when Christ was questioned by the Pharisees about the works of healing he performed on the Sabbath, he replied simply, My father is always at his work to this very day and I, too, am working. Beloved, God is always with us, working all around us, every single moment of every day. We don't have to decide what to do. We simply need to be present and aware and decide to join in. I think most of the time we keep waiting for God to show up in big, mind-bending ways, However, I tend to believe that it's the little moments that matter most. God is waiting for you in those moments and wondering, where are you? Are you back there? Or are you busy looking down the road? Because I'm right here, right now. Reminds me of this wonderful little tune by Rob Thomas called Little Wonders. The chorus goes something like this. Our lives are made in these small hours, these little wonders, these twists and turns of fate. Time falls away, but these small hours, these small hours still remain. Finally, I want to remind you of something really important. I don't know where you are this morning but I know where you belong. No matter who you are or where you've been, 
no matter what you believe, or even if you believe anything at all, you are welcome here, and you belong here. Here in this space that welcomes saints and sinners, believers and skeptics, the lost and the found, the wonders and the wanderers, and families of all shapes and sizes, and people from every point along life's journey. Does that sound familiar? I don't know where you are, but let me assure you, you belong here. Our takeaways for today. Grace is a creator that always seeks us out, walks beside us in every moment, and will never abandon us. God is here right now, in this moment, in every moment, waiting for you to love and to take part in the building of God's glorious kingdom. And wherever you are, you belong here. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.